Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we turn to your word for us, may your spirit rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing this morning, in our speaking this week, in our believing throughout our lives, and in our living with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's first reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Today's daily lectionary reading. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's second reading is from the lectionary, the book of Exodus, chapter 1, and following verses through chapter 2, verse 10. It's a story of God's amazing grace in the Old Testament with God's people in the land of Egypt. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of a war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks to the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, uh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, 
for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him up out of the water. The word of the Lord. Today's wonderful story marks the beginning of the Exodus story, the story that recounts the people of God's liberation from the hands of a Pharaoh who had long forgotten the time when the Israelites were welcomed in the land. Times have changed a bit, and this Pharaoh is no friend to the Israelite people. In fact, he fears them for no other reason than that they have grown so great in population. And as a result, he does what political leaders sometimes do. He creates an enemy where there is none. He stirs up his people to fear the Israelites, and he starts treating them differently. And in time, they become slaves. Even as life grows harder and harder for the Israelites, though, they, they grow in population. This, of course, only increases Pharaoh's paranoia, so he decides to take action. He calls before him two midwives who serve the Israel, Israelite community. Shipra and Pua are their names. He orders them to kill all the male babies born to the Israelites. He orders them to collaborate with him. Collaboration is a quite popular term these days in the fields of education, business, and nonprofit management. From group projects in elementary school to group projects in business school, learning and working has become more and more cooperative and collaborative. Funders of nonprofits are actually more likely to give money to support programs that involve collaboration among different organizations and people. They reward you the more you collaborate. There's a whole industry, in fact, that's popped up to create and support platforms for online collaboration with names like Slack and Trello, Yammer, and RedPen. These days, there's a lot of collaboration going on in our world that is healthy and productive. 
But over the course of human history, collaboration has also, as we know from experience, caused all kinds of trouble. During World War II, all across Europe, the Nazis found people from all backgrounds and in all places who were willing to collaborate or at least be complicit in their crimes. These collaborators were motivated by all sorts of things, of course, anti-Semitism, nationalism, ethnic hatred, anti-communism, opportunism and fear, but they collaborate, they did. A few years ago, French President Emmanuel Macron acknowledged his country's collaboration with the Nazis by pausing to mark the 75th anniversary of a mass roundup of Jews at a cycling stadium in Paris. Over the course of two days in July of 1942, French police herded more than 13,000 Jewish citizens into the stadium before they were sent to camps. More than 4,000 of those gathered were children. Fewer than 100 people survived. In a statement, Macron insisted that it was indeed France that organized this. Not a single German, he said, was directly involved. These two illustrations at the far ends of the collaboration spectrum remind us that collaboration is not a good or a bad thing in and of itself. It all depends on whom you collaborate with. As a freshman in high school, I had a decent choral voice, a very high tenor actually. I was good enough at the time that I was placed in the advanced choir as a freshman. The choir director at the time was an institution in that school, and he was not well liked by many people. He was tough and had no trouble publicly shaming someone on the spot if they missed a note or a cue. But despite all this, I worked really hard to earn his trust and respect. I was a freshman and I desperately wanted to be accepted and be a valued member of the choir. One day in front of the full choir and orchestra, the director asked me to show the rest of the choir how he wanted a particular verse to be sung. I was beaming. This was my chance, I thought, to secure my standing with my peers. But um, I was wrong. Being identified as someone who was valued and respected by an authoritarian high school choir director did not help my social standing a bit. My point is, choose your collaboration partners carefully. The midwives in our story face enormous pressure to collaborate with Pharaoh. But our text says, and I'll read from the message, our text says the midwives have far too much respect or fear for God and don't do what the king of Egypt orders them to do. In other words, the midwives work for God and not for Pharaoh. They take God more seriously than they take Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh has shown a willingness to kill those who get in his way. In perhaps history's first recorded act of civil disobedience, the two women disobey Pharaoh's direct orders. But they don't disobey him alone. They have one another to work alongside with, to be supported by. So when the crucial time comes and their backs are against the wall, they can say together, well, at least we can go stand before Pharaoh with one another. Well, as the story tells us, eventually Pharaoh figures out what's going on. They figure out baby boys are surviving all over the kingdom. And he calls the two women before him. When asked by Pharaoh what has happened, the women could admit their actions and receive their punishment, but they don't. Instead, they do something surprising. They lie. 
They lie through their teeth. They lie to save their own lives. They lie to protect the Israelite families. Not only do they lie about their activities, but they get in a subtle dig against the Egyptians, telling Pharaoh that the strong Israelite women, in contrast to the weak Egyptian ones, give birth before the midwives can get there. Sorry. Together, these two midwives are clever and creative and cunning. And while lying and trickery are not usually thought of as behaviors rewarded by God, sometimes context is everything. I almost feel sorry for Pharaoh a little bit. He really thinks he's the only one with power in this story. He really thinks that he can do anything to the Israelite people and get away with it. He really thinks the only threat to his power would come from men. But here are two slave women getting the best of him. And they get the best of him because they refuse to collaborate with him. They instead choose to collaborate with God. They are midwives. Their work is to help bring new life into this world. That's what midwives do. And that's what I think collaborating with God is all about. It's built into the word itself, co-labor, collaborate. So I'm curious, is anybody here listening today a midwife, a certified midwife? If you're not, you can be. You don't have to get training. and You don't have to work in a delivery room to earn the title. For we are all midwives whenever we roll up our sleeves and get involved in bringing new life into this world. We are all midwives whenever we step off the sidelines and enter the thick and pain and joy of this world. Whenever we see something happening that's unjust and we speak up, we are being a midwife. When we tutor a child, we volunteer at the food pantry, that's being a midwife. We are being a midwife when we invite another person to church. When we take the brave step of saying that being part of a church has been a source of life and hope for me, would you like to come and see if that may be true for you as well? We are a midwife whenever we listen deeply to another person. We take the time to hear and receive the yearnings of another person's heart. Refusing to participate in something we know to be wrong, we know against God's will for the world, that's being a midwife. We can all be Shipra and Pua. Vernon Jordan is a successful lawyer, business executive, and passionate citizen. In 2015, he was asked to speak at Stanford University's graduation ceremony. At the ceremony, he told the story. It was 1960, he said, and I had just graduated from Howard University Law School. I was home in Atlanta working as a law clerk for a prominent civil rights attorney. I had a wife and a child and was making the princely sum of $35 a week. In my first month on the job, he goes on, we traveled to a small rural Georgia town to represent an 18-year-old black man who had been arrested, arraigned, indicted, tried, convicted, and sentenced to die all within 48 hours. The proceedings were held in the segregated courthouse of town. We three NAACP lawyers slept in the nearest colored motel 30 miles away. Each day we appeared in court to plead our case, our client's case. And each day at lunch, the white lawyers and court officials would go across the town square to the white-only cafe, and we black lawyers would go to the local grocery store and order sliced bologna, a loaf of bread, a jar of mustard, a Coca-Cola, and a baby Ruth which we would eat in our car parked on the courthouse square. On the third day of the trial, a black woman beckoned me to the vestibule of the courthouse. She whispered to me, we've been watching you eat bologna sandwiches for two days now. Don't eat today, please. Come to my house for lunch. 
When we arrived at her home, we saw an amazing sight, a table set for royalty, her best silver, china, and crystal, a lace tablecloth, beautifully folded white cloth napkins, and the most exquisite southern cuisine I have ever eaten. Some ten black men and women joined hands with us as our husband's hostess, hostess husband excuse me, said grace. I shall never forget the one sentence in that prayer. Lord, wait out here in Tattnall County. We can't join the NAACP, but thanks to your bountiful blessings, we can feed the NAACP. My point is not all of us can directly defy Pharaoh. It doesn't always work that way. But we can't support those who do. We can play our part in the story. We can collaborate with those who fight for justice. We can work with those who long for true peace. So I'll ask the question again, are you willing to consider being a midwife? Are you willing to be in the thick of it, in the pain and joy of it? Are you eager to bring God into a barren and broken world? I want to go back to Shipra and Pua one last time. It's important to remember they did not defeat Pharaoh. They barely slowed Pharaoh down. Frustrated by the failure of his midwife plan, Pharaoh ordered every boy born of the Israelites thrown into the Nile River. For the Israelites, things got worse, much worse actually, before they got better. But I like to think that Shipra and Pua played an important role in what followed in the story. I like to think that word got around the slave camps about what they had done. Did you hear about Shipra and Pua? Can you believe it? They defied Pharaoh, and they got away with it. They saved the lives of our babies. I like to think that as the Israelites reflected on the woman's actions, new possibilities began to emerge for them. Slaves began to imagine a different reality, a different possibility. This was the beginning of a story of hope and life, a story of a people who grew to know and love and serve God. Something else important happened, too, because of Shipra and Pua's courage. We know their names. They are part of God's salvation story, while the name of this particular Pharaoh and his co-collaborators have been lost to history. This morning, I invite you to celebrate with me the life and witness of Shipra and Pua and the ways they use their creativity, energy, and imagination, experience, and courage to bring new life, new possibilities into the world. May we be like them as God continues to bring joy and mercy and peace into our lives. May we have the courage to write our names into God's amazing salvation story as those who are doing, willing to do whatever it takes to help bring life into this barren and broken and beautiful world. May it be so. Amen.